This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Join the only roundtable podcast in compliance with five of the top commentators in compliance. Check out the rants and shout out at the end of each episode. Hosted by Tom Fox, the voice of compliance. Everything Compliance is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. Everything Compliance is now the award-winning Everything Compliance, having won the top talk show in podcasting award by W3. In this episode, we have our first year-end wrap-up of our favorite stories and favorite shout-outs and rants. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox back with the, oh, yes, award-winning Everything Compliance Top Talk Show in Podcasting Award. So, Everything Compliance. And we're here with our first year-end edition, and we have the full gang, and we're going to have some fun today. We are literally across the globe to bring you today's show uh, in various places. So, uh, Karen Woody, what uh, over the past year has interested you uh perhaps the most. Well, uh, thank you for letting me be here again. I'm excited to be here on this year-end episode. Uh, my theme today has to do with actually where I'm sitting right now, which is in the middle of Washington, D.C. And uh, the story to me is really, as I said, more of a theme. And that is the shift now in the SEC enforcement tact that we've seen from both the chairman, Gary Gensler, and the Division of Enforcement, the head of that. Um, what is most striking is that we have seen story after story. There are three stories even just this morning about um, enforcement crackdowns on now SPACs, on crypto. If anything, I feel like the theme of this year has been this tough talk again from that particular agency. It harkens a little bit back to what we saw somewhat when Mary Jo White took the chair and we saw this no broken windows policy go into effect. It seems to be the way the agency is headed right now. Um, we've seen definitely a promise of increased uh, fines, increased um, crackdowns on various different topics. And so to me, like I said, it's not it's been this theme and continuing drumbeat we've seen from that particular agency and somewhat in conjunction with the, the language we've seen from DOJ, which I'm sure some of my other panelists here will discuss, that this really does seem like a, a, a robust enforcement um, season that we're entering into. And uh, so that is, I think, to me, what will be the most striking going forward and certainly seems to be the biggest shift from previous uh, chairman, at least in recent times. Um, so that to me was the story of the year. So, Karen, has this story of increased enforcement discussion led to increased right. enforcement activity? That's all I actually wanted to jump in because I have to, I just realized that I have someone coming up to tell me to put on a mask. Sorry. All right. Well, uh, Karen's at an airport, so she's going to put on a mask. And while she's at that, I'm going to ask Matt, what has intrigued you over the past year? Story for compliance and internal audit professionals in a lot of ways is 
cybersecurity, okay, that's not a surprise. People always say cybersecurity and have for years. But I specifically think that the ransomware really changed the nature of how you about security, what regulators are demanding for cybersecurity, and therefore how you visit all of the controls and processes with this change in cybersecurity threat. Uh, we could probably talk for another two hours listing all of the ransomware attacks that we've seen over the last year. I think probably notable was the Colonial Pipeline attack where, where they wound up having to disconnect gasoline feeds to roughly 100 million Americans all over the South. That happened at the end of But we had the meatpacker, JBS. They were disabled by ransomware earlier this year for several days. And just the other week, I saw that uh, the Maryland Department of Public Health, they were shut down by a ransomware attack. And these are the folks who are supposed to be scheduling COVID decisions and whatnot for uh, consumers at a critical time when everybody needs to go and either get vaccinated or get a booster. And now the health department had been shut down for a bit, um, just scratching the surface. So I think that one, We've seen the Biden administration jump on that quite a bit. So earlier year, they rolled out a big cybersecurity plan uh, that was going to be more mandatory reporting of your cybersecurity attacks. If you are a government contractor, if you're in critical infrastructure, um, and I've been looking at some of the timeframes for that. So, okay, now you have to understand you've had one. You have to understand, is this an attack? Or did Frank down the street with the backhoe accidentally cut our telecom cables? And that's not an attack, bad thing, um, but you need a good incident detection and response plan. Uh, if you are in transportation, say like trains or trucking or other supply chain industries like that, you have one day port. And my favorite is that other federal agencies, if they are subject to a major cybersecurity attack, they have one hour attack to CISA, which is the Cybersecurity Infrastructure Security Agency, I think. But CISA is the federal government's now primary cybersecurity regular guidance point agency. So all of this means that you're going to have a whole lot more incident detection good incident response. You're going to need policy. You're going to need to know when to enact them. A lot of that is going to be this joint effort, IT security, probably the internal audit risks, probably compliance, trying to make sure that you understand what the regulators demands. By the way, from your consumer privacy obligations, if data privacy is involved in the breach and you have a whole other set of notifications, and we could go on and on and on. And the last point I wanted to bring up, Tom, I think it's really interesting that now the Securities and Exchange Commission is talking in a bit newer of a way about cybersecurity and particularly talking about the importance of internal controls to safeguard your assets. So this is my big thing is that I would say a privacy breach you lost 100 million customer records like look that that's big compliance problems and pay a lot of money down the road 
But at the end of the day, you, the business, you still have all of those consumers. The asset that you had to do marketing or outreach or whatnot, it's still there. You can still do it. So there wasn't any harm to the asset per se. But if they lock out your ability to operate sales, if they sneak into your software system and they execute a wire down, $100 million to God knows where with, without even knowing, that's not like a privacy breach. Those assets, like that's gone. Get that out of lost system to remake the revenue. You're never going to get the $100 million back. Question would be: Is the SEC going to cybersecurity breaches as a failure of internal control because you couldn't hide the assets? Now we haven't really seen that. I don't know that they're relishing the opportunity to beat up a company for suffering a cybersecurity failure. He underlines the point that nitty-gritty things like awareness training, your ERP software. Uh, and things like that. That's all going to become and more regulators are going to be able to say, no, you screwed that up. So now that's a regulatory compliance failure. Here's your investigation. Here's your monetary fine. And I think that's going to be one of the big things that we see in 2022 because ransomware and unauthenticated attacks on your ERP software system and all of this techno gobbledygook that we normally haven't paid attention to, it's all going to become much, much more important from here forward. So, Jay Rosen, what has been on your mind as a top story from 2021? Well, Tom, I'm going <clears> to <throat> go to my backyard, literally. Uh, I'm now living be in Orange County behind the Orange Curtain. And one of my neighbors down the road in uh, Irvine, California, is a little company called Activision Blizzard. Uh, you may know them as the publisher of Candy Crush, Call of Duty, in the world of Warcraft games. Uh, back in July, Francis Townsend, the chief compliance officer, had a tough week. The state of California had just soon sued the video game company for allowing a sexually harassing culture, and Townsend then circulated an email to employees calling the allegations false, and now employees are furious. The California Department of Fair Employment filed suit on July 21st, accusing Activision of longtime frat boy workplace culture where employees are subject to constant sexual harassment. It goes on to detail some of the harassment included cube crawls where male employees got drunk and wandered from one cubicle to another, ogling or harassing female employees. Activision, to no surprise, took issue with the allegations. The company first issued a statement saying, we value diversity and strive to foster a workplace that offers inclusivity for everyone. The statement goes on to say that Activision had implemented numerous measures in recent years to improve its culture and to make management more responsive. Then we have the Chief Compliance Officer Townsend in the statement that she made to employees. She made a few provocative declarations saying, a recently filed lawsuit presented a distorted and untrue picture of the company including factually inaccurate, old, and out-of-context stories. Most of Townsend's statement does try to be supportive of the Activision Blizzard employees and lists numerous measures the company has taken. Then she took another swipe at the lawsuit in her last paragraph by saying, We cannot let egregious actions of others or truly meritless and irresponsible lawsuit 
damage our culture. Ooh, if Townsend had just kept quiet about the lawsuit's allegations, she might have left employees, might have not have left employees livid. Except she did say that allegations are false when the allegations presumably came from the very employees that Townsend Arts trying to win over. So where are they now? Employees went on a war path. They launched a petition calling management's previous statements abhorrent and insulting to all who believe in the company. The petition has been signed by 2,500 current or former Activision employees, and employers are also planning a walkout. Townsend joined Activision in March after spending the 2010s working as a general counsel for billionaire investor Ron Perlman, holding the uh, holding company, and in 2000s as a senior, now this is very interesting, counterterrorism official in the Bush administration. Townsend served as an assistant to the President for Homeland Security and Counterterrorism during the Bush administration. There she went on to defend Bush's administration's use of torture, including waterboarding, sleep deprivation, and forced nudity. Draw your own conclusions about whether the experience that she's had in the past has prepared her for the rigors of managing a young, modern, highly diverse, and highly skilled workforce. This seems to be a fair description of the company, by the way. Mike Morhaime, co-founder and longtime senior executive who left the company in 2019, has already released a statement saying he feels ashamed. The fact that so many women were mistreated and were not supported means we have let, down, let them down. In addition, we did not succeed in making a place for people to feel safe. Not until October did Activision finally move and at that point, they hired a new senior vice president of ethics and compliance. And the video game maker developer's chief compliance officer, Francis Townsend, made this announcement in an email to employees. In announcing Brewer's promotion, Townsend said, Jen has already been skillfully guiding the company's function for many years. More importantly, she has been instrumental in helping to reimagine how investigations, training, and employee relations can function better. Those measures that have been added include ongoing investigations. In recent months, we have received an increase in reports through various reporting channels, and people are bringing to light concerns now. Investigation team resources have been augmented by three full-time positions. Moving forward, they plan to scale this significantly, adding 19 full-time roles. Investigation team structure, Activision Blizzard, will combine its investigations group into one centralized unit. This will allow investigators to be more efficient and coordinated. Employees relations team in collaboration with Chief People Officer Julie Hodges. The company will focus on best communicate on the best way to communicate with team members. And finally, transparency. Townsend said Activision Blizzard is working toward improving its documentation and investigation pro, uh, investigation procedures. Now to bring us up to yesterday from the New York Times, Bobby Kotick the chief executive of Activision Blizzard, continues to face pressure over accusations that he didn't respond to claims of sexual misconduct from employees at Activision Blizzard. Now, a union-led investment group plans to demand that Mr. Kotek leave his position as an outside director of Coca-Cola, Dealbook reports. The SOC investment group will ask Coke not to nominate Mr. Kotek to its board the call by SOC, which works with union pension funds, says it manages more than $250 billion in assets. The group had initially campaigned against what it says was Mr. Kotek's outside pay package 
and then it shifted gears after the California regulator accused Activision of tolerating uh, pervasive sexual harassment. So where does this leave us now? It's another huge mess. The allegations are horrible. The workforce is beleaguered. The cleanup will be expensive, time-consuming, and will distract the company from keeping its eye on the ball and leaving a public relations disaster to deal with. From the moment this story broke, we could all see how it was going to turn out. But if Activision Blizzard had only listened to their crisis managers, rolled up their sleeves and began doing the hard work, then this matter may not have played out so violently for all to see. But in some strange way, maybe this need need to happen to create sufficient momentum for management and the board to finally begin taking necessary steps to put this company back together again. Tom? So, Matt, do you have a comment for Jay? I, I do, and I think Jay did a great job recapping ridiculous, unnecessary saga that happened at Activision you know, with terrible, terrible consequences for its employees for far too long. And like, look, all of it really traces back to a disconnected senior management that thought it would be a to hire Frances Townsend as head of compliance when she really had no substantive experience with the ethics and compliance matters that really up what a good compliance function can do. She's good as a national security person. Maybe she'd be great as a risk analyst or a general counsel for some sort of global risk manager somewhere, but no, she never should have been in that role. Management never should have thought that was okay, and they did for years and years, and the culture just went to rot. Uh, I'm back on track, and maybe they will, but you know, none of this needed to happen, and it was just a sad commentary this year that, that we saw it all. So I'm going to circle back to Matt's comments on ransomware because I belatedly saw Mr. Armstrong with <laughs> waving his hand from merry old England <laughs> in his uh, bad Christmas shirt. Mr. Armstrong, <laughs> do you have a comment or a question for Matt? Yeah, I do. I mean, it was just really to emphasize what Matt was saying and that we're seeing the same in this side of... Europe, there's a directive called the NIS directive, uh, definitely bedtime reading over the holiday season, that extends the duty of critical infrastructure providers to notify even when there isn't a data breach. Of course, most ransomware is reportable to GDPR anyway, and the NIS directives being extended into what will catchly be called NIS2, and, and as a result, a very wide range of businesses will have additional reporting requirements. And we have definitely seen engagement from stakeholders and from regulators after ransomware attacks. Probably the most public is TravelX. That was, uh, as the name suggests, a uh, currency exchange business. I know that, for example, after their ransomware attack, their bureau in Heathrow was exchanging currency on a manual basis. So they had an exercise book out of a stationer's and they were writing down in a ledger the transactions that they were doing. And TravelX, unfortunately, in its current legal format is no more, partly as a result of the ransomware attack. So ransomware has been fatal. They are the significantly the most difficult cases that we've handled uh, in, in 2021. And I agree with your assessment that they're here to stay. These groups 
splinter and reform so the death of any one group is premature because they mutate and change form and without being over pessimistic i think they're here to stay and a real threat for any business well let's just stay with that uh, upbeat note from mr armstrong and uh, ask you jonathan what has caught your attention uh, over the past year well i'm i'm going to cover a, a a case that's been uh, most people's favorite case for a couple of years now the long-running nissan renault uh, Carlos Goen saga, which I think is the gift that keeps on giving. And I'm sure I'm going to encourage Karen to do a whole course for her students just on the lessons to be learned from uh, uh, from this whole saga. So to step back a bit, uh, Renault is a, an organization that had a history of missteps in internal investigations, I mean, building on Jay's theme. There uh, have been episodes over uh, electronic vehicle technology, for example, that don't stand up to scrutiny of the way in which the investigation was conducted. And uh, in some respects, the Goen case is a disaster at many different levels. And there's been a new court case this week, as well as a, another uh, press conference from uh, Goen from his uh, lair in the Lebanon. And just to recap the story, there was a coming together of uh, Nissan and Renault, and it was said that the French side and the Japanese side didn't see eye to eye. Now, possibly as a result of that, in November 2018, uh, Carlos Goen was uh, arrested in Japan. Uh, whether or not that uh, arrest was fair, what we certainly know is that uh, an arrest of another U.S. national, Greg Kelly, probably went beyond or, or, or below the standards we'd expect of fairness. On this podcast in the past, we've criticized the UK Series Fraud Office, for example, by getting people into the jurisdiction under false pretenses to serve papers on them. Almost certainly Kelly and possibly Goen were brought into the uh, Japanese uh, jurisdiction under false pretenses uh, to be arrested. Now, Kelly's uh, trial uh, has finished, but we're waiting judgment in that. Goen, of course, uh, hasn't stood trial because he escaped in a music box, eventually emerging uh, from the box and from a private jet in the Lebanon, where he remains, and there is no extradition in place between uh, the, between there and Japan. Um, there have been all sorts of allegations going to the heart of the investigation. And I think a real obvious lesson that we've forgotten in this case is that if you are investigating wrongdoing, you must be above suspicion yourself. Um, so, for example, I've investigated alleged visa fraud in a part of the world, and I was told, go in on a tourist visa and do it. You can't do that. If you're going to investigate wrongdoing on behalf of others, you must be above suspicion yourself. And it seems that there are certainly some 
let's just say, unfortunate stories to come out about this whole investigation about raids on allegedly private servers in jurisdictions that didn't uh, allow it. There's ongoing litigation between Goen and Nissan, and it involves uh, Renault as well, and unseemly allegations about uh, a Dutch entity being used to pay different people possibly including paying people close to the French government. This story just isn't about Carlos Ghosn. It obviously sets two nations almost against each other because of the shareholdings that they had in both sides. At the same time, we've got a whistleblower, uh, Ravinda Passi, who was the former head of legal who had concerns about the way in which the investigation was conducted and raised them with the majority of Nissan's board. Passy's role was then realigned, to use the euphemistic term that seems to have been used. But Passy was in court this week because he was supporting his case against his former employers with documents that were in his possession and the court said shouldn't be in his possession. So uh, if the court is right, and we assume it is, even the whistleblower seems to have behaved possibly unlawfully when he blew the whistle. And obviously that case is uh, going for trial in an employment court in the UK. And I imagine that we'll find more evidence about this whole case and the missteps made by different sides. Passy was certainly a victim of bad behavior as well. The video that's in the public domain of the raid on his house does not make good watching. Uh, and at the same time, we have uh, an organization that's left that Goen says is visionless. Its shares fell 7% last week, and it's easy to assume that part of that is the removal of Goen without a direct succession in place, and part of it is, it is alleged, the over-promotion of safe people with no industry knowledge to try and sort of patch up all of these concerns about the investigation. So it seems to me that it's a case where almost nobody comes out of it glowing and beyond criticism. And as I've said, I think there's a number of lessons for compliance officers. Many people on this call will be conducting internal investigations. They'll be looking into wrongdoing. And first of all, I think it tells us that you have to understand who your client is. Who do you work for? Who do you owe responsibilities to? Is that faction A or faction B in the company? Or is it the company itself? Is it the company's shareholders? You've got to be clear who you owe your responsibilities to. As I've said, like Caesar's wife, you've got to be above suspicion if you're conducting an investigation like this. You've got to understand geography and culture not only understand the law in each particular jurisdiction that's relevant to the investigation, 
but understand the culture as well. What's permitted? When can you go and to somebody's home and knock on their door? Can that be outside of office hours? Must it avoid the Sabbath? You've got to do investigations in truly sensitive ways, particularly when the geographical reach is so great. Um, you've got to, I think, avoid this factional warfare within uh, corporations. Do the right thing. Make sure that your investigation is defensible. And I guess all, uh, I guess above all, remember that two wrongs don't make a right. Even if somebody has done a bad thing, that doesn't justify you doing another bad thing to prove their bad thing. And so given that I think those seven lessons don't seem to have been learned by the Nissan team and those investigating this alleged wrongdoing, I suspect it's the story of 2021 in compliance terms, and I suspect it's likely to be the story of 2022 as well. So Jonathan Marks, what has caught your attention over this year? I don't know. I'm afraid after hearing everybody else, I, I might, might not. Caremark seems to just rattle in my brain just because, you know, I think boards today, you know, probably have the biggest wake-up call ever. You know, I thought that in 2002 when Sarbanes-Oxley was enacted here in the United States and people were running around bantering all kinds of things like GRC, internal controls and corporate governance. Um, I know Matt knows this, but, you know, I asked the same question today that I did three years ago. I asked people, can you help me define what corporate governance is? And I get blank stares from everybody. But, I mean, if you look at the progeny of, you look at Marshan versus Barnhill and Hughes versus Local 443 and Intermarketing Group um, and Clovis and Boeing, and even recently the dismissals by MoneyGram and Lending Hub, you know, the shareholders seem to be more active these days. And under Section 220, um, you know, they're expanding their, their boundaries for stockholders to get access to these books and records. And so, you know, I think the drum's beating pretty loud right now. And I think that, you know, this effective partnership that compliance is supposed to have with the board is something that's real and it really needs to be there. You know, Matt talked about cybersecurity. You know, I raised my hand. I wanted to make a comment, but you ignored me. That's okay, Tom. I still love you. Um, it, you know, that's a mission critical operation, you know, and it talks about when we talk about we talk about mission critical operations. You just can't list the risk anymore, right? You know, there are a lot of companies out there that just list wonderful. But if you can't put those things in action and operationalize them, you might as well have done nothing at all. And so, you know, I think, again, I think the drum's beating pretty loud. You know, every time I'm talking to a board these days or board members or we're looking at, you know, root cause for something, I go back to governance. And, you know, I know people hate the term. But, you know, I, I ask people, you know, when, when, you, when you define governance, what does that mean? You know, is it a system of processes and things, what's included in there? People don't know. They don't understand. It's a waterfall concept. You have to have good governance to have good risk management, and risk management drives compliance. It doesn't work any other way. It's a waterfall. And boards today, if you don't get it, if you really don't get it, get out of there. Because I got news for you. They're coming for you. You know, they, they went hunting for internal auditors during Sarbanes-Oxley, and they're still doing that. 
They're hunting for chief compliance officers. It seems to be logical to me that, you know, okay, we're down here, we're going up. And, you know, I think, you know, all the things you see in the DOJ and everybody is doing and saying, you know, that's wonderful. But, you know, until you actually start pecking on those people that are making a couple hundred thousand dollars in some instances to sit there and supposed to be providing oversight, you know, and not only oversight, they're supposed to be making sure that these things make sense, right? So it's not, you know, I mean, look at, look at, Look at the the corporate trauma that that at for for Marshan versus Barnhill or Blue Bell. Look at the corporate trauma at Boeing. I mean, all these things are giant wake up calls. And so again, I think compliance is ultra critical. I compliance expert on the board, go get one. You know, just because you're an audit committee chair doesn't mean you understand compliance and the other way around. And so you know, I think we're. We're coming into this 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 new realm, so to speak, and um, you know I keep hearing the drum keep beating, and every time I hear the drum beat, you know it's the care mark drum, and you know running through these cases and keeping track of these things, you know really just it, it just bothers me because I don't understand why people aren't taking it more seriously. You know the evolution of you know the the looking at compliance programs, you know the the stuff that the DOJ has come out with with regards to you know, evaluating your compliance program and all that kind of, that's wonderful. Go through the 11 hallmarks of compliance. That's wonderful. But at the end of the day, if you don't have an effective partnership with the board and you're just listing risk for the sake of listing risks or putting in a whistleblower program for the sake of putting in a whistleblower program, just to check a box, I think at some point you're cooked. Holiday cooking from Jonathan. So I'm going to I'm going to sit in on this one because I want to talk about what I think the biggest story for compliance has been in 2021, and that's ESG. Uh, I think it's the biggest story because if you're Mr. or Mrs. Compliance Professional or Ms. Compliance Professional or some other uh, nomenclature of compliance professional, you need to be a part of the ESG effort going forward. ESG is going to be one of the most significant corporate initiatives um, going going forward each component, E and S and G. Compliance is uniquely situated to be a leader in this, if not the corporate leader. Why? Because here's what an ESG program looks like. It's a materiality assessment. Uh, What does that sound like? A risk assessment. Two, it's policies and procedures. That's something you do every day. Three, it's ongoing monitoring leading to ongoing enhancement or rather ongoing monitoring of your ESG program. Number four, uh, it is reporting the results of your ESG uh, programs. Uh, A critical component of that is public reporting for U.S. public companies. And then number five is enhancement. Uh, What does that sound like? That sounds like continuous monitoring leading to continuous improvement. So those are the basic steps of an ESG program. And then within ESG, what do compliance officers do? Well, the... 2021, excuse me, 2020 update to the evaluation of corporate compliance programs said that corporate compliance officers had to have access to all data across the organization. So you're one of the few corporate functions that literally is mandated by the regulators have access to data and information. Two, you are the keeper of the flame for institutional justice and institutional fairness. Uh, That's directly within the S component. Jonathan Marks just talked to us about corporate governance, and corporate governance is something every compliance professional is a part of, whether you're the one reporting to the board or not. Good governance uh, below the board level and at the board level is a key function of a compliance uh, 
program and a chief compliance officer. So you are uniquely situated. But more importantly, if you don't get in front of this, uh, I think in five to 10 years, compliance will be consigned to a technical function in a corporation and somebody else will be running it. So uh, my word and my message is for compliance officers, uh, get ahead of this, learn about ESG, assess what you're doing already, which really falls directly within ESG. Uh, I mentioned institutional justice and institutional fairness. Well, whistleblowers, hotline reporting, that's all a part of that. Discipline and incentives of your compliance program, that's all a part of that. Uh, financial reporting and internal controls, that's all a part of that. Literally everything you do in compliance probably has an ESG touch point. As to the E, do you need technical help for environmental? Absolutely. But you can get the technical expertise because I'm extraordinarily thrilled to report to you the three most important things about the an ESG program are document, document, document. And for documentation in reporting, of the E or the environmental is going to be the most critical uh, so that you not only have it documented, you have the backup information if a regulator comes knocking and wants to see your uh, public uh, reporting on it, and then you can show that to shareholders or other stakeholders who are interested. So uh, compliance officers, you need to get ahead of ESG. You need to be a part of this. The dysfunctional U.S. government Uh, is making some steps on the regulatory side, as Karen alluded to, but uh, corporations are driving this. But more importantly, the markets are driving it. Uh, Investors are driving it. Institutional investors are driving it. Private equity companies are driving it. Banks are driving it. Even insurance companies are driving it. So when you have this wide variety of business interests focused on one thing, uh, you know that it's significant and important. And now we're going to have a word from our sponsor, and we'll be back with shout-outs and rants. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. And now we are on to fan-favorite shout-outs and rants. But this is not a typical shout-out and rant because it's a shout-out and rant back across 2021. We've all had a lot of fun with this. Uh, I'm surprised surprised sometimes Mr. Marks hasn't blown a gasket, but he hadn't blown one yet, so let's hope he doesn't blow it on this one. But we're going to start with the same order. Karen Woody, uh, what shout-out or rant do you want to reintroduce us to from 2021? Okay, my shout-out from 2021 that I think turned out to be the most prescient was when I shouted out to Ted Lasso. To be honest, I don't even remember how many months ago it was. It was one of my first, my first guest appearances on the podcast. 
And I just want to say that I think that might have been what turned the tide to allow that show to become one of the most popular and then sweep the Emmys. So if any of those people in Hollywood want to, you know, have me put a plug in, it's, it's, a, it's a good investment. It, it's a thing, and I think you're absolutely right. In fact, Matt started some early um, Oscar buzz for Paul Rudd that's been picked up in the media. So uh, everything compliance, it's a thing. Matt Kelly, what shout-out or rant uh, do you want to tell us about? Well, you know, so I, I have a runner-up. I'm going to cheat and sneak in a second one. But I do remember that back in October – I ranted about Republicans, in particular Senate Majority, uh, Minority Leader Mitch McConnell, who was holding the economy hostage to have the U.S. default on its debt, and then at the very last minute he backed down. And I like to think that the new debt ceiling resolution that they have been reaching today is, of course, due to my uh, outburst and diatribe against him back then. But I have to say my favorite, I guess it was a rant, happened back in late April, early May, when we were talking about the phenomena of hometown deli, which is a publicly traded over-the-counter pink sheets stock whose sole asset is a semi-open, zero employees, zero full-time employees sandwich shop in Paulsboro, New Jersey, which had all of $14,000 in revenue last year which is run by a local part-time wrestling coach at the high school. And because it was publicly traded, a bunch of wackadoos, day traders online, bid up the market cap for a hometown deli to $113 million, which, by the way, is roughly where the market cap for this dinky little sandwich shop still exists today, $100 million. What do they actually do? They make sandwiches sometimes. How much money do they make? Practically none. So, of course, this being America, it is worth $100 million. And my favorite detail is that the wrestling coach who runs it uses some back storage space at the back of the sandwich shop to run wrestling matches and fight club things. And, folks, I'm old enough to remember that the first rule of fight club is that you don't <laughs> talk about fight club. And here these guys just threw that fact right into the 10K and... The world is going to hell, and that's just yet the latest example of it. That was my favorite from this year. <laughs> Jay Rosen, what do you have for us? So I went through the process of going back over my rants and raves over the past calendar year, and I have to say I'm just too much of a, a Boston homer, and i got to get over my bromance with Tom Brady. So I'm going to go back to something that I spoke about earlier in the summer, and it's not a person, it's not a place, it's a concept. It's called civility. And as of this year, when we are living with so much crazy and either the person to the left of you or the person to the right of you, one of those people, there's a good chance that they're not going to politically uh, stand and see mm -hmm. the world where we are. So I'd like us all, as my holiday wish, even though I don't have the Hanukkah bush hair in the Rosen office, that I'd like us all to take a moment, count to 10, that's more than a moment, but before you bite somebody's head off, before you send somebody down, they're a person just like you. So let's try to, I've been doing a lot of reading and going back, and this is not a new thing that we do not, cannot listen to each other, but it's something that they used to say, when you meet somebody, 
don't talk about religion, and don't talk about politics. All right, that still leaves us sports and Tom Brady every once in a while, but my wish is for civility for the whole group here, and uh, it's great being able to spend two weeks with you, every other week with you, to talk about the things that we also deeply care about. So thanks, guys. So Jonathan Armstrong, what uh, do you have for us? Yeah, I haven't done as much homework as Jay, and I'm probably going to break his golden rule. But to Karen and Matt's point, I am wearing a shirt from a legitimate Oscar winner. So there we go. Um, uh, I've, uh, I, I suppose I've, I've gone back to the theme of those who've shown leadership in a crisis. And a lot of, uh, a lot of our uh, listeners have shown leadership in a crisis. You know, compliance officers particularly have been, you know, mask wearing, social distancing, respectful of other people's space when they've been in the workplace. And many of them will have forsaken holiday parties last year and they will be forsaking holiday parties this year. So I guess I shout out to all those people who've shown strong leadership and direction for forsaking the things that bring us joy for the good of all. And regrettably, I exempt Boris Johnson from that uh, without getting too political. A man who has uh, attended, uh, condoned or permitted three holiday parties, not one, not two, but three holiday parties that are now being investigated by the leading civil servant. And he knew or ought to have known that those parties were going on under his roof. So at a time when corporations, the UK and the world at large needed strong leadership, Boris seems to have been raising a glass. That isn't a good look on a leader. Jonathan Marks, we are all waiting. What do you have for us? Well, since feedback seems to be a big deal these days in data analytics, I'm going to start with some data. So 74 died under his care since 2000. 31 failed drug tests. Cited 29 times. 14 times his patients had more than the allowable medications within them. Of the starts of these individuals, or I should call them equestrians, um, there were 74 deaths. And I'm talking about Medina Spirit and I'm talking about Bob Baffert. And so I know I was ranting before about the fact that how could he not know that the horse had drugs in it? But if the, if the data is... Data is Data's talking here, folks, and uh, if this guy didn't know that Medina Spirit had medication in it after the derby, um, I'll be a monkey's uncle. And so, you know, like I said, like I said before, in the spirit of data analytics, in the spirit of feedback, 74 people died, 31 failed drug tests, 29 times cited, 14 times the horses had more than the allowable butin them, and of the starts, starts. 8,913 starts, that's 74 deaths, which is 8.3 deaths per start. He leads all others in that particular category, followed by a close second by Jeff Bondi. So, Bob Beffert, I'm sorry. 
this year, 2021, is the 20th anniversary of 9-11. And I did a podcast series on looking back on 9-11, largely from the compliance perspective. But there was one individual I interviewed for that series, John Lee Dumas. John Lee Dumas was a college senior on 9-11 in ROTC. And he said on the podcast that night he knew he was going to war. He had signed up for a peacetime army, and in literally one day, his world changed. And so I want to shout out to the men and women who not only served in the military, but actually went to Iraq. They, um, lots of the remembrances of 9-11 focused on those who died rightly in New York City. Uh, we focused on the change in America and the response of America, which I did from the compliance perspective. But I want to shout out to the men and women who actually went to war. Those men and women were 20, 21, and 22. And when I think about that, uh, and uh, then I look at them today, and I watch John Lee Dumas during our podcast interview, even he said, oh, my God, that was 20 years ago. Literally, we've had an entire generation since we went to war. So for the men and women who served in Iraq, who served in Afghanistan, I want to shout out to you, and I want to end with what I asked John Lee Dumas was his most important reflection from 9-11, and it was, we're the land of the free because of the home of the brave. So I want to shout out to every service person, everyone who went to war, uh, and everyone who served in the military because of 9-11. Yeah. So, ladies and gentlemen, that brings us to our end of, once again, the award-winning Top Talk Show in podcasting, not just compliance. We're the only talk show in compliance. I wanted to thank you all, and I look forward to everyone having a great holiday season and getting back in 2022. Uh, so thank you all. This is Tom Fox again. Thank you for listening to Everything Compliance over 2021, whether you joined us for this special year-end episode or whether you've been with us all year. The Everything Compliance gang will be back in January 2022 to take a look at the new year. There's a couple of new podcasts on the Compliance Podcast Network I'd like to highlight for you if you haven't checked them out. The first one is Design Thinking, where with my co-host Karsten Tams, we take a look at this valuable social engineering tool for the compliance profession. Second is Hidden Traffic, a podcast hosted by Gwen Hassan, who takes a look at the scourge of modern slavery and illegal human trafficking. Finally, Karen Woody from our Everything Compliance Gang has started her own podcast where she looks at the history of insider trading, but she does through so through the lens of interviewing students from her insider trading class at WNL Law School. It's a fascinating way to learn about insider trading in a most unique way. I hope you have a most happy holidays and Everything Compliance will be back in the new year. Thanks for listening. Everything Compliance, or I should say the award-winning Everything Compliance, is a special production of the Compliance Podcast Network. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.